You're listening to Impulse to Innovation. The Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Helen Mees. As a global community of mechanical engineers with over 120,000 members in 140 countries, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers has been at the heart of the engineering profession since 1847. The Institution's mission is to improve the world through engineering by sharing the latest news, views and insight into the creative world of technology and the people that make it happen. Despite the all-consuming mission of the global healthcare sector to do no harm and protect society from illness, disease and death, it is, according to NGO Healthcare Without Harm, the fifth largest emitter of global emissions on the planet. Indeed, healthcare's climate footprint is estimated to be 4.4% of the global net emissions. That's equivalent to the output from 514 coal-fired power stations, making it comparable in significance to the food sector in terms of climate impact. It seems ludicrous then to think that the act of caring for those suffering from health conditions brought about by climate change is partially responsible for their condition in the first place. It's quite clear then that the healthcare sector, both clinical and technological, must address their alarming contribution to the climate crisis. A two-pronged approach is needed, one which treats those ill, injured or dying from the climate crisis, and the second which drastically reduces its own innate contribution. Many of the leading global healthcare companies and healthcare service providers are already implementing sweeping changes and here in the UK, the National Health Service, the NHS, is leading the way. The paradox for the NHS is that while it accounts for around 5% of the country's carbon emissions, it also provides over 7% of the UK's GDP, buying in goods and services from over 80,000 suppliers. Recognising its responsibility, in 2020 the NHS became the first national healthcare system in the world to commit to delivering a net zero service by 2040 through its Greener NHS initiative. To achieve this, it will not only have to change the way it cares for patients across the hospital network by opting to use more sustainable methods of treatment, but it will also have to radically transform the way it selects and uses products and services – driving change across its entire supply chain network. The NHS believes that reaching the Paris Climate Change Agreement could see over 5,700 lives saved from improved air quality, 38,000 lives saved from a more physically active population and over 100,000 lives saved from healthier diets each year. The NHS and other global healthcare organisations cannot make these changes alone. Engineering will and is playing a significant role in improving care provision and in developing the technology that clinicians use. It is then engineering that will drive the development and adoption of sustainable and green technology alternatives for the healthcare sector going forward. Dr Nick Watts, the NHS's Chief Sustainability Officer, knows just how critical tackling the NHS's sustainability issues are and what its responsibility is to addressing climate crisis. Nick is responsible for the NHS's commitment to deliver a world-class net-zero emissions healthcare service. 
He leads the Greener NHS team across the UK, which focuses on improving the health of patients and the public through a robust and accelerated response to climate change and broader sustainability agenda. Nick is a medical doctor by training, licensed in Australia and the UK, and has trained in population health and public policy. He is a member of the Royal College of Physicians Faculty of Public Health and an honorary associate professor of the University College London's Institute for Global Health. Prior to the National Health Service, Nick worked internationally as the Executive Director of the Lancet Countdown and the Lancet Commission on Health and Climate Change, a collaboration of UN agencies and academic centres across the world. He has also focused on engaging the health profession on the links between public health and climate change, having founded both the Global Climate and Health Alliance and the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change. Nick's passion for addressing sustainability in healthcare is not only tangible, but it's infectious. And it did feel at times like I was talking to an engineer. But I started by asking Nick, what motivated him to focus on a field which is more associated with engineering than it is with healthcare? Nick, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a real pleasure to have you and I know that you're a very, very busy man, so I won't keep you too long. But I wanted to start by asking you, how does a, a medical professional find his way into climate change policy? Because that seems like poles apart to me. What was the motivation? What, what got you sort of focused on that particular issue, which most of our engineering listeners would really consider the domain of technologists? Sure. So, uh, firstly, thank you, Helen, for having me here. Exciting. Glad you think I'm a very busy person, very good at pretending to be busy, one of my <laughs> key skills. Oh, it's such a good question. And it's something that I think was probably an even better question back when I started caring about this. Because back, you know, if you want to go the whole way back to Margaret Thatcher talking about climate change as, you know, the defining challenge of the de generation, we thought about climate change, environmental sustainability, really as a problem of polar bears and trees, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. over time we started to say, oh, God, okay, this might actually have uh, some impact on the way we live our lives. Maybe maybe small businesses might be affected. Maybe agricultural systems might be affected. Maybe, you know, we may need to think about energy solutions, transport, etc. One of the very, very, very last to that table, I think, was health. Yeah. Um, one of the last sort of new voices, new emergent voices into the climate discussion was the health profession saying, actually, do you know what? Some of the foundations that we built, uh, hospitals, healthcare profession, professions, the way that we train our doctors, our nurses, that was on the assumption that the environment was going to be stable. And it turns out that might've been a bad, bad assumption. So if you are a pharmacist, a physio, a doctor, a nurse, almost everywhere you look, you know, you will be familiar with the social determinants of health and the idea that, you know, the health of your patients broadly is driven by factors outside of the four walls of a hospital. Take that one step further and you go, oh my God, and it turns out that the determinants of those determinants are founded on whether or not you have access to, you know, nutritious food, clean air, a stable environment, you know, something that isn't trying to bite you because infectious disease is spreading or, you know, flood your house or flood your school because, you know, the weather's changing and severe injury that comes from that. So I got into it because I, you know, kind of a little different, not, not through the sort of polar bear entry route, but because, you know, 
I like to think I'm an okay doctor and caring deeply about the stuff that uh, the stuff that affects the health of your patients, you know, um, is your core business. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you, you're right in what you're saying that, that we don't necessarily think about how we impact health in terms of uh, climate change. And, and it is something that I think has been a slow realisation, I think, for a lot of people. And certainly within the engineering community, I think it's it's now starting to come to the fore, which is obviously why we're having this conversation today. So I think my next question really to, to kind of help set the context uh, of this is for you to broadly kind of tell us a little bit about the, the Greener NHS initiative and how that came into being and, and what its ambitions are in terms of establishing the NHS as the first net zero healthcare service in the world? There's so many different ways you could tell this story, hey? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me go a couple of steps back. 2008, Climate Change Act, United Kingdom, a big, big landmark piece of legislation. Um, it said, grumpily, we're going to get to, I think it was an 80% reduction, maybe initially by 2070, maybe 2050. Sorry, I've forgotten. Uh, at the time, it also said we expect the public sector to do its damn job. Um, that included the healthcare system. And so the NHS created something called the Sustainable Development Unit, small team, four or five people, bit of a think tank, right? Yeah. Able to think about, start to imagine what this would look like, which as usual for the healthcare system around in the United Kingdom and around the world was, you know, a couple of years, maybe a decade or two behind uh, where the rest of the world was, because the rest of the world around 2008 was into the delivery phase of this, right? We were talking yeah. really quite seriously about decarbonizing power sector, about decarbonizing transport, you know, heavy industry. So we spent about 10 years or so doing that. Okay, what does this mean for us? Is it challenging? Is it expensive? It turns out uh, when you look at it seriously and you take it seriously, as you would expect the NHS to do, you know, the answers to that are, yeah, it's pretty challenging. Um, is it expensive? It has a little bit of an upfront cost, but actually because of the nature of some of those externalities, most of the benefits that you might find from sustainable sort of healthcare are felt directly by the healthcare system. So no, actually, the return on investment is pretty damn good. Is it something we should do or would it distract from core business? Uh, no, actually, as it turns out, when you seriously look at it, you very rarely, in fact, I don't think you ever run into a genuine tension of should we care for patient versus should we prioritise sustainability. They are just the same thing. You, yeah. I genuinely have almost never come across that. So there's about 10 years of that. 2018, 19, the NHS said, okay, well, let's move into the new this next phase. Let's think seriously about what it means to not just talk about but deliver um, low-carbon healthcare. And so that was around the time that I actually came into the into this work. I, I wasn't a part of phase one. There were some heroes and legends that had been doing that for the first sort of decade or so. I was brought in, I think, as a bit of a grumpier Australian who uh, who was <laughs> slightly uh, slightly more focused on the 9 a.m. tomorrow morning question. What are we going to do at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning? We worked through for about a year or so, took it really quite seriously. Um, and the question was balance the emergency of climate change. Take that emergency seriously. And if you take that seriously and the fact that the world has sat on its hands for two or three decades, well, then you need to go as fast as you damn well can. Balance that with feasibility. Let's not come up with something that we don't genuinely believe in. Let's come up with something that is costed, that we genuinely have all looked at the costs, gone, wow, okay, we're going to have to run at this and that's going to be challenging, but let's do it. And that we really actually feel like we have the visibility over the things that we need to do, the things we don't know. 
it brought us to those two targets for the NHS. So you're right. Sometime in, uh, on the 1st of October, a couple of years ago, um, we came out and we said we think we can get to net zero by 2040 for the emissions we control directly and 2045 for our full carbon footprint. And if you'll permit me, because it's been a very long answer already, Helen. <laughs> That's um, all right. <laughs> I want to clarify those because I really, really hate the words net zero being used when people don't clarify what they yeah, mean. Sure. I, the caveats are so critical. People sort of are getting a bad taste in their mouth around the words net zero, and they kind of should, but there's no problem with the word itself. It's that we're using it to, you know, frankly lie to each other, greenwash a bit. So 2040 is scope one and two for the NHS. 2045 is our full scope one, two, and three, both in the United Kingdom and internationally. And it includes a few out-of-scope things as well, like patient and visitor travel, which we're taking responsibility for because we know we are big and so we have that accountability. The net is the other caveat. You've got to clarify how big are you intending to offset there? Tell me about the negative side of your emissions. For us, 6% for our direct profile, 8% for our indirect, for our full profile. And you won't ever hear me word, say the word offset until we get to 2039 or 2044, right? Mitigation yeah. is the only game in town. Is that a long answer to your question, Helen? <laughs> yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it, it's it, it's an area, as I said before, it's an area that we don't often associate with healthcare. And so from an engineer's point of view, understanding how you're actually uh, right. addressing that is I think something that's that's really quite important for for us to to be able to get our heads around and and it, it sounds to me like you've you've really focused on the things that you know that you can do and and putting that passion and that that effort behind it to really focus on that I think is is the key to making this work really isn't it at the end of the day uh, absolutely and like, you know, to put in context, we're big, right? We're 1.4 million healthcare professionals, 155 billion pounds of spend, fifth largest organisation in the world, about 5% of national emissions, 40% of public sector energy consumption, right? Gives you a sense of, like, the NHS is not a small, small beast. Yeah. But you can think of us in a bunch of different ways. You can cut that cake a bunch of different ways, right? You can think of us as something weird and scary, uh, cardiology services and oncology services and, you know, to an engineer, I suspect that gets about as scary as, you know, when you guys start talking about sort of structural infrastructure and, you know, <laughs> all that sort of stuff that terrifies me. Or you can think of us as effectively a series of heated boxes, right? Our hospitals, our clinics are, are big boxes and they're heated. They're heated in, you know, sometimes weird ways, sometimes to precise ways, but, you know, not much more complex than that. You know, we've got a bunch of mobile assets as well, right? We call them ambulances. Um, but uh, but essentially, they've got to adopt either an electric or a hydrogen drivetrain. Um, they've got some specific requirements around them, uh, you know, a bit heavier than other things. They've got to be able to do a couple of clever things, lower lower down, raise back up, you know, charge a, uh, charge a defibrillator. But, but there are absolutely questions where, frankly, we've benefited from the last 30 years of engineering sort of, and technology progress on this and we're able to take that and just apply the last mile question which is okay but how does a paramedic interact with that yeah. uh, challenge or how does you know how does a radiologist interact with the energy requirements they you know they need and meet that against against their clinical needs yeah yeah absolutely now y you've been in this role as you 
rightly pointed out, about two years now. And it's very clear, I think, to everyone listening already that you are extremely passionate about achieving the goals that that you set for the NHS. So how well along are you in terms of achieving those goals? And, and what areas are you kind of keen to focus on in the next year or so? Sure. So the problem with net zero is you don't get to just focus on two or three things, right? Yeah, instead of focusing on absolutely everything and then another 10 things you haven't thought of and How have we gone? So far, we are on track. We, for our first year target, that meant that meant 1,260 kilotons or so of of carbon that we that we hit. Um, Our second year target, which we haven't yet come up to the milestone where we're supposed to hit that, but that's coming up in a month or two. That'll be about another uh, roughly two megatons, so 2,000 kilotons, and like in total across our full footprint, about four megatons of reduction that we're supposed to hit. We think we're going to hit that. Cool. The data is sometimes a little laggy, and so you're, you know, instead of thinking you're going to hit that, and then it's confirmed a month or two later. But, um, but we feel pretty good about that. Cautiously optimistic. It gets tougher as you go a little further on in this journey, right? As you get to sort of year five, six, seven, that stuff does start to get a fair bit more difficult. Where are we keen to focus on? Let me say that there is a bunch of stuff where I think we've done fairly well. I think our estate decarbonisation has really started to take off, and this has been partly from investment we've made, partly from investment we've won, frankly, from across government. We've put in combined total about £877 million uh, since since we started. Is it enough? Nah, it's about 70% of what we think the total capital requirement is, but it's pretty damn good, frankly. Yeah. We feel as though we've done a decent job of turning over, you know, just the sensible stuff, right? Does your trust have a serious heat decarbonisation strategy? Tell us about that. If you look seriously, whether or not solar works, we've got 56 trusts in the country today that are currently building solar on their roofs in their brown space. It's pretty cool. Yeah. The stuff that I want to focus on, because the stuff that I, I'm not worried about, but it needs a bit of, needs a bit of a, a bit of help. I think is the stuff where you get pretty deeply clinical. And the reason for that is you can kind of command and control estate decarbonization or fleet electrification, right? You, you, the technology's already there. The cost profiles are relatively straightforward. Medicine is weird and wild and complex though, right? And no one patient consultation is the same. And, you know, it's the job of a cardiologist completely different to the job of an orthopedic surgeon, completely different to the job of a community occupational therapist in every possible way. And so the solution to that is really not going to function. Your your listeners can't see, but I've got a beard and a a bearded bureaucrat somewhere in London is not going to be able to command and control that stuff, right? It's really only going to happen if we inspire and get our 1.4 million healthcare professionals, frankly, a little bit angry, really get the sort of grip between their teeth to say, I want to figure out what this means for my specific area. And I want to determine what low carbon community pharmacy looks like. So that's the area that I want to, I want to focus on. We've had a couple of really cool examples of how that's started to take off, but um, I think that's what's next. Yeah, I I can completely understand what you're saying there. I mean, when you've got buildings or vehicles or whatever they they're a finite sort of shape and object you you can manage those you can see where the boundaries lie but when it does come to to patient care it becomes very um nebulous because you've got well every patient as you rightly said is different i i myself have just gone through major surgery in fact and and uh, you know the the treatment i had was 
different to the four of the ladies that were in the the ward with me um and and so all of that has to be tracked in some way uh, and managed and when you get down to that grassroots level it becomes very complex in terms of managing the systems of systems doesn't it in 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 the way that you encourage people to make changes in their working practices that i think that's right where we have seen and if you really go and look other than the big procurement regulation, you know, fixed mobile assets, sort of shifts, decarbonisation we've been talking about, where you see the most exciting examples across the NHS of uh, big shifts in our emissions from anaesthetic gases, big shifts in our plastic use, big shifts in uh, where we are managing acute patients and step-down patients in community, etc. What I think is happening, if you really go and trace it back, is somewhere you find an asthma nurse or you find a physio, or you find a uh, gastroenterologist who said, do you know what? I'm not sure it does have to be this way. I reckon I could try this. And everyone told them, no, 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 nonsense, nonsense. <laughs> yeah. You're too busy. You're too, you couldn't possibly. And they said, no, 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 I, I'm pretty sure we could try this. And then they tried it, and then nothing went wrong, and actually things got a little better. And then they studied it, and then they published that study. And then the person next to them tried it. You, you absolutely, where the NHS has really had success, it has been because a tribe of people, a profession of people, have identified something that they uniquely control that they can run at. And they said, to hell with all of your bureaucracy and nonsense, I'm running at this. Um, that's where I think we've found the changes that we're really proud of. Yeah, I think that's where you, you get the most... Um drive and and the longevity out of implementation of those kind of processes is is when you've got that small core group of people who are absolutely driven to achieve it and that can make such a significant difference whether that's in an NHS trust or whether that's in uh, you know a, a manufacturing you know industry cool. so i i kind of want to get into the weeds a little bit and 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 talk about some of the overlapping issues between the IMEC and and the NHS in terms of, of their strategies on sustainability, because we, we've got quite a lot of things in common, particularly around transport, energy and manufacturing or in the NHS's terms, supply chain. So if, if we might take some of those in turn, if we may. So if I can just set the scene for for our listeners, and and you may need to correct me on some of these figures, uh, Nick, because they, they may be slightly out of date now. But in 2018, roughly three and a half percent, about 9.5 billion miles of all road users in the in England were related to patients, visitors of patients, staff, and suppliers to the NHS. That was around 14 percent of the total emissions due to transport in the UK. Is that roughly give or take about right? I think that is. Let me add a little bit of colour. I think at peak hour, twice a day, we are responsible for up to one-fifth, 20% of Birmingham and Manchester's road traffic. Wow. Okay. So now over the last year or so, you have made a huge investment into reducing emissions particularly around transport, and you've touched on that already. So can you give us some examples of those? What What is it you've actually been doing to make those changes? Sure, sure. So uh, anyone working in uh, transport mitigation, climate change, will know that you should be focusing on three broad things, right? You should be asking a question about whether or not a journey has to occur. Yeah. You should, once you've asked that question, did the journey definitely have to occur? Well, did it have to occur in that way? Could you have cycled? Could you have walked? Could we have set up, you know, a built environment that facilitated that? And then once you said, no, it did have to occur in that way, 
did have to occur with the car, then you can ask questions about fuel use. And broadly, I think we've tackled all three of those. Um, you will see out across the NHS uh, a shift towards virtual wards, towards providing care for patients closer to home. Frankly, it increases access. It's more convenient for patients, we find, uh, where it's clinically appropriate, something everyone loves. That stuff, I don't want to claim credit for because that stuff is just good medicine. Yeah. Um, and it's something that, that people are that people are engaging with and working on. And frankly, a modern healthcare system should be taking on. The stuff that is a little closer to us, um, you will start to notice, uh, and I think we're at the point of sort of 80% of trust now with their own cycle to work sort of leads with budgets there, starting to make sure that you have the facilities for staff to get access to um get access to the kinds of uh, the kinds of stuff you might need to you know be able to cycle in in this country um, uh, into work and that's you know that's important our our active travel commute rates are better than the national average but they're a little embarrassing they're not you know they're nowhere near what you might what you might want them to be on our vehicles themselves, we own about 15,500 vehicles or so. We're the second largest fleet in the country behind uh, Royal Mail in front of British Telecom, I think. We induce, uh, or we commission rather, it depends on the day, and we don't always measure it in vehicles. Sometimes we measure it in road miles, but let me let me hedge and say about another 40,000 vehicles or so. Um, and that is non-emergency patient transport. It's taking, you know, yeah. uh, through uh, through a cab company, perhaps through, you know, uh, some of those middlemen, uh, a patient to and from a nephrology appointment, a dialysis appointment, right? Put that into two categories. Category one, cars, vans. I'm frankly not that worried about them because today the average new car, new uh, electric vehicle is easily cost competitive with its non-electric counterpart, easily. The average vehicle, I reckon by about this time next week, not just the new vehicle will be cost competitive with its non-electric counterpart. So we are frankly seeing our fleet turnover naturally yeah. there. Now we're incentivizing it. We are providing salary sacrifice schemes out to our staff that do use their cars for uh, for work. And they're pretty damn favorable schemes, actually. They make it impressively affordable. But we are Manchester Foundation Trust, big H hospital, I think, trust up in Manchester. It's one vehicle away from being fully electric. Wow. You go and ask them why did they do it. Now, it was driven by the sustainability team, but frankly, it made good economic sense. The harder part is the niche stuff where the market won't necessarily help us unless we make sure, unless we exert pressure there, right? And so ambulances, rapid response vehicles, those are weird, bit tough to decarbonize. There, we've taken a slightly different approach. So we have invested with UKRI and the innovation of that. We've got a couple, actually, of chassis and drivetrains that we think we can make good use of. Some in use at the moment. Up in Birmingham, there's a fully electric ambulance uh, driving around carrying patients today. People love it. There's a hydrogen electric hybrid, which has a range extender, hydrogen range extender. It lets you hit rural patients as well. The term rural in this country is a very, very different concept to, to me um, as an Australian. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but that range extender gets you most of the way uh, for what you need to hit all of our patients. We've been talking about them for a little while now. Um, what we're excited about is those were the prototypes, right? That was the proof of concept. We then had uh, up in Liverpool earlier this year um, the announcement of another 20 rapid response vehicles, fully electric RRVs, being bought by the ambulance trust there. London Ambulance Trust, LAS, wanting to go further, faster, always um, looking to buy 
I think initially four, then 40 fully electric ambulances, um, it sees this as the future. So you start to get an idea of very, very quickly pilot innovation of one turns into something at scale for the NHS. And, and are you getting good support, good interaction with the, the vehicle manufacturers as well? Because I think that's that's an area from an engineering point of view, you know, whether or not we as engineers are able to to create the technology that, that actually need, you need. And in terms of, of those kind of vehicles, you, you touched on the fact that they, they have specialist equipment on board, which means they're very different to your average transit van. So so are you getting that interaction? Or would you like to see more from, from the manufacturers? Always would like to see more, always. They do have specialist equipment. Um, they have specialist requirements. They can't be too heavy. Two reasons, right? Heavy means range is compromised and range is important for us. Yeah. Um, uh, they have to be able to charge pretty damn quickly. They probably have to charge for our ambulances, you know, at about 2 a.m. They probably have about an hour and a half where they can charge. Um, so we've got some weird charging requirements and, and you know, they've got to charge in weird places, our ambulances, because, you know, their shift pattern is predictable-ish, but any paramedic listening would say, no, it's not, mate. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so we've got weird requirements there. We've got weird requirements, the weight, like I said, as well. The other reason why they can't go too heavy is um, it means we would have to relicense quite a lot of the paramedics in the country, and that yeah. probably is a step too far. The other weird thing about these ambulances um, is we have to be able to mess with the electrics. If you have an electric drivetrain, well, we want access to some of that power because uh, we have a whole bunch of stuff we want to charge power mess around with inside the ambulance that our ambulance converters want to play with and there i would say we probably have had less success uh, in engaging mm. with manufacturers on this they get a little bit anxious when you say i want to mess around with you know fine if you want to mess around with the battery and you're not using it to power the car but the second it's part of the drivetrain well um, so no, we could do with a little help there. Hey? All right. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that any of our listeners out there who are working in this particular field um, might be able to uh, to give some uh, ideas and thoughts on that one, which would be great. Now, let's talk a little bit about energy consumption. Um, you touched on obviously the size and scale of of the the hospital network, but again, let me kind of give some facts just to kind of put this into context. So you have around 1,200 directly managed hospitals, I think, across the UK, or is that across England itself? That's across England. Across England. So as well as nearly 3,000 uh, other treatment facilities, and many of these are working 24-7, it's about 24.3 million square metres of floor space. Now, I'm going to give that in non-SI terms, and, and I know some of our listeners will be cringing, but um, it's the equivalent to about 3,400 football pitches, which is a huge... I mean, that's like... It's bigger than the city of Lincoln, if you think about it, in, in terms of, uh, you know, metres squared or kilometres squared. The NHS spends about 10 billion a year on its maintenance and running of these kind of facilities. So I would suspect a significant proportion of that goes on heating, lighting, water and so on. So how is the NHS addressing its energy consumption and what strategies are you putting in place to reduce your carbon footprint in that sure. context. Let, let me also say you missed, and we might be glad you missed, uh, you didn't comment on the, <laughs> the primary care facilities as well. Right, yeah. About 8,800 GP practices spread across about nine, ten thousand 10,000 buildings. 
yeah. smaller, often older buildings uh, in, in primary care. And, you know, the NHS estate, its secondary estate is old, man. Uh, so challenging. Two or three ways you tackle that. You're entirely right. Uh, a lot of that is a lot of the sort of capital maintenance bill is spent on, you know, things you would expect, lighting, water. So there's overlap there. And we can make sure that when we're taking decisions about how we uh, how we spend that maintenance bill, that back, backlog maintenance bill, we are properly prioritizing things that frankly make sense where we, where we will thank ourselves in the medium or short term because it was a good investment decision. LED lights are the most boring and like borderline magical example of that. I'm not really sure <laughs> I understand any of the basic uh, <laughs> the basic physics or engineering behind that but um but every time i see the savings attached to them it's wild <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I never thought i would care so much about led lights man so you got to make sure you're making some sensible decisions with that budget and we certainly are engaging with our trusts every time we go out and look at that capital spend make sure that we're making frankly prudent financial decisions for the for the health service um, I've already talked about the roughly eight seven seven million pounds invested out into out into the healthcare system. That's important, right? Uh, we're a capital mm. constrained uh, environment, and so if you do want solar panels, well, it's going to pay for itself eventually. But you know, you're going to have to provide some up upfront capital. You're going to have to be a little bit innovative about some of that capital. Yeah. We've had some trusts, uh, Wolverhampton, Hull University Trust in North Midlands, I think it's called. They've come up with some really cool, you know, community sort of trust-funded ways of accessing capital, power purchase agreements, et cetera, finding innovative ways of partnering with local authorities. So we've been trying to support a fair bit of that, and that's been good fun to mess around with. It's not public yet. It should be public. It's not public yet. It'll come out when we can finalise one or two final, final pieces, though it is currently in use. We also have a net zero hospital standard. Right. Um, it applies to all retrofits and all new builds over 15 million pounds. So it has a pretty broad reach for the for the NHS. The new hospital program for the country is currently making use of it. And frankly, quite a lot of the new constructs are as well. It's called the net zero hospital standard. I want to be transparent. Hey, what it actually is, is a process to get to that point. Um, it has frankly some pretty high standards that you got to reach today if you want to have approval to build something in the NHS over 15 million pounds, but then it has a process to slowly ratchet up as technology, as the market, as our confidence evolves over time, it reaches full maturation in 2028. But uh, those are the sorts of things we are, from a policy level, I suppose, playing around with. Yeah. So it, at the moment, it's about managing the assets that you've got and making sure that you can bring them up to a, a good enough level. And then anything that new that's new that comes along is making sure that it hits that standard that you've now set, the bar that uh, people have got to overcome um, to make sure that the facilities are of the right standard going forward. So there's there's quite a, you've got quite a balancing act there really, haven't you? You, you have taken 17 seconds to say what I took four minutes to say. Yes. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> but it's, 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 um, it, it's not going to be an easy task in terms of, of, um, making sure that you can bring those facilities up up to up to scratch, particularly when you've got that amount of floor space essentially to to cover with the estates, is the engineering community within the NHS the the estates particularly are, are they taking on new roles, new aspects to to try and overcome some of that stuff? Oh man, the estate staff will not shut up about how much they care about sustainability. <laughs> 
those guys have been uh, the sort of heroes and legends of this space for for longer than you know, frankly, anyone else. Right? Uh, our challenge is bringing everyone else on board. Those guys are already there, so yeah, they're bought in, they're passionate, they're you know, like, from a bunch of different perspective right this is core i think to you know to what you what you train in but then core to sensible financial management sensible energy management right you know it's just sort of yeah. uh, why on earth wouldn't you you tell me tell me about um uh, you know some of this stuff we expect gets easier over time as you know a proper ground source heat pump right air, air source for, for a big big hospital probably not fully viable just just yet Bit expensive, but but very very quickly. I think we're expecting those costs should come down pretty damn rapidly, and it starts to become something that is you know uh, readily available. In fact, common sense for uh, something the size of a hospital is that right? Is my assumption you know broadly correct? Yeah, I would say that you know over time, as as the technology becomes um, easier to manufacture and and also um, uh, more widely available and and with a, a, a an organisation the size of the NHS, then you you've got economies of scale in a, to enable you to to purchase that uh, equipment at a much more um, sustainable cost, I suppose, over the long term. So yeah, I I think um, yeah you will start to see yeah. some some drop off in the prices and the the costs uh, as you start to invest in this kind of technology and. It, it's almost like you're a test bed in some respects for, for this. This is a great opportunity, I suppose, for technologists like myself and engineers to um, to try out sure. some of these ideas and, and work with you on that. And I know because you and I have worked with the SBRI on on, on their funding uh, recently and, and we're seeing some incredible technology coming through, aren't we, in, in terms of ideas and concepts that people want to try out, want to work with you on uh, to see what they can do to improve sustainability. From small businesses partnering with the NHS, absolutely. From big businesses, right, had a great conversation with Nova Nordisk three seconds ago about some of their new innovations, genuinely quite difficult engineering challenges. They supply one uh, sorry, roughly 50% of the world's uh, insulin. Now, they're a pretty committed company to um, uh, to sustainability, but insulin has to be maintained at two to six degrees Celsius, has to have a cold chain attached yeah. to it. And a low-carbon cold chain is a tough thing to do in this country, let alone across the entire world. Um, so, you know, there's that. On the on the small business stuff we were, we were working on, um, I can't remember if you're in the room for the um, – uh, for avian for the um for the drone yeah right uh, yeah it was uh, yeah cool. yeah <laughs> um being able to provide uh, life-saving chemotherapy medicines to the isle of white just in time um exactly how you how you need it to run an efficient service for the nhs by drone which can get there in place of a truck a truck a hovercraft a truck and then another van yeah uh, that's cool what was even cooler is i don't know if they showed the pictures but i've seen some of the pictures since um, of just how excited the staff are at the hospital when those drones land. They're all, you know, you take a picture of them, these drones landing, delivering the medicines, sort of nurse out the front, receiving it, and faces pressed up against the window, nurses, staff, <laughs> yeah. nurses, pharmacists, excited about the fact that their trust is one of the first in this new low-carbon innovation. It's really cool. 
Yeah, it is very cool. I, I did see some of the photographs in, in their presentation and it yeah. was great. And knowing knowing that we we have in the IMACI, um uh, a UAS challenge, which is aimed at young engineers developing uh, remote vehicles, um, air, airborne vehicles, is just fantastic to know that that technology is going from them working as students on a project yeah. right through to real life, life-saving technology that is making a, a, an amazing difference to people's lives. That kind of gets me really excited and quite buzzy about it. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's man. good to see that that's working. Now, working with you, the medical device suppliers and, and healthcare technologists on a daily basis, I, I know only too well the scale of the NHS's supply chain. Now, am I right in saying that uh, you have about 8,000 suppliers across the globe? I think you're off by uh, a factor of 10. I think it's about 82,000 suppliers. 82,000, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, 82,000. And the the purchasing sort of of, of products and services is about 60 billion a year is, you know, give or take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's in the tens of billions. So... How do you handle such a vast supply chain? And and what are you doing to work with manufacturers of medical devices and equipment to reduce not only the NHS's environmental impact, but theirs as well? Sure. And and critical, right? Um, you heard it, we heard at the very start, we are focused on scope one, two, and three nationally and internationally, because frankly, anything less than that is a bit of a greenwash at the moment. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's easy taking on something that big because we don't control the full you know, uh, emissions profile of every single company we we purchase from, obviously. Um, but we are big and we're a big purchaser, and so we ought to take some damn responsibility. couple of approaches you have to take there, I think. Number one, scope three for us is about 62% of our profile. Let's not conflate that with procurement solutions only. Um, it is our Aspen nurses that decide what they prescribe. It's our anesthetic techs that decide whether or not we purchase uh, you know, harvesting technology. It's our catering staff that decide where the food that we give to our patients come from, our physiotherapists that decide what mobility aids you go home with after a hip or a knee replacement. Yeah. So we have a great deal of demand-side agency over the things that the NHS purchases and a great deal of passion, frankly, from our 1.4 million staff to exert that agency. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, I think you have to set some pretty damn clear long-term trajectories and guardrails and be damn firm about them. So we've been clear. Within the decade, the NHS will no longer purchase from anyone that does not meet or exceed our ambitions on net zero. And by that, to be specific, we mean one minute past midnight, April 1st, 2027, new qualifying criteria for anyone to enter into financial arrangements with the NHS. Pretty serious stuff. It's a long way off in 2027, and we announced that about a year or two ago. The response from industry, interestingly, was thank you. Thank you for the clarity. That's tough, but you guys have been clear. We understand that you are the first, but certainly not the last, um, to embark on this journey. And so let's talk seriously about how you can, about how we can manage this together. So once you've done that, right, once you've set that long-term stuff, you have some near-term milestones. We've just put 10% weighting into all of our tenders for net zero, that sort of thing, to start to send some market signals. You've exerted your demand-side pressure. Then I think we have to have a sensible conversation about support, yeah. right? And that, frankly, for us is what the small business innovation innovation program looks like, what SBRI looks like. It is what uh, we have a program of support with 
let's be transparent, some little asteries, asterisks, asterisks, attached to what I was just <laughs> talking about. If you're a small company in this country, then we're understanding of the idea that some of this stuff is tough. And so we'll work with you to figure out what your emissions footprint, uh, emissions profile looks like, but we'll also provide a two-year exemption. Take a little bit more time to work through what that looks like. If you can go early, amazing. We're excited about that. But if you are working through quite a lot at the moment, then, then fine. So you have to do a fair bit there as well. And then the very, very final thing, and I say this a lot, and I can't believe I haven't said this. We've been talking for like half an hour and we haven't, I haven't even said this. You have to have some fun, right? And to have some fun, you got to have friends doing this stuff with you. In any game of rugby, politics, Formula One, I'm a rubbish sustainability person. I love Formula One. It's the team that is uh, having fun that I would put my money on winning. And so it's important that we don't do this alone. Um, For the NHS, we have had to work really quite closely. Um, uh, Glasgow at COP26 last year, we had 10, 15 of our biggest, most critical suppliers across a range of industries turn around and say, what I said, Nick, that looks tough, but okay, we're with you. We think we can get there. This is the AstraZeneca, it's the Medtronics, it's some of the big um, ABHI, ABPI, the big sort of trade bodies saying, okay, we're going to work on this challenge seriously. That was exciting. What was uh, just as exciting, maybe even more exciting. COP27, five seconds ago, uh, we were in Egypt the United States, the Department of Health and Human Services, turned around and said, okay, we're just as committed. We've seen the NHS sustainable supplier roadmap. We think it looks pretty damn good. We're publicly committing to try to align as close as we possibly can to that, right? There's strength in numbers here. The fun and having some friends with you is, is critical. Yeah, most definitely. And, and you're right. The, if you can get those big players on board, that can make a significant difference. But what we also have to recognise is that 90% of um, the medtech industry, particularly in the UK, is is SMEs, is less than 100 people. And and you're absolutely right to, to change your working practices, to change your manufacturing processes. All of those things can be extremely costly for small businesses. So to be able to get the big players on board and, and perhaps get them to support those smaller businesses is going to be vital, isn't it, in terms of developing your sustainable supply chain yeah, over the coming years. That's right. Listen, let's be, let's, be, let's be real about what we're talking about here, right? We are on board with, I think, take as given, the idea that the world is on fire, the idea that global average temperature rises 1.19 degrees above pre-industrial average. We're going to blow past that 1.5 degree threshold we set for ourselves in just a couple of years two degrees, three degrees, four degree worlds, they look frankly quite terrifying for if you're a health professional, if you're a small business, I would be really worried about that future world, about being able to do business in that future world. So we're talking about something that we all agree is an urgent priority, but we are also not talking about being unreasonable here. If you listen carefully to what I said, April 1st, 2027, we want to know that we're working with companies that are aligned to our trajectory. We're not expecting anyone to be at zero emissions or, you know, any any form of net zero by 2027. Yeah, We're talking about what we think is a reasonable trajectory aligned with the country's and the economy's general direction through to 2040, through to 2045. I think that's pretty reasonable, quite yeah. frankly. And and I want to I want to make sure that we place some of that in context, right? That this genuinely is an achievable goal because that's the approach the NHS is taking here. Now, I wanted to ask a little bit about climate crisis, particularly around, I guess you've got two issues really, haven't you, within the NHS. One is is the clinical impact of climate change on society as a whole, such as 
um, extreme heat that we've seen this summer here in the UK, just bizarre weather. And particularly poor air quality uh, is increasing the, the incidence of people coming into hospitals. But you're also facing the impacts of this kind of extreme weather. Actually, on your facilities as well, aren't you, in terms of flooding? I, I was reading a fact that by 2035, you expect a doubling of NHS facilities that will be in high flood risk zones in the UK. So how are you tackling these two issues? Tough, man. You're, you're getting at the mitigation adaptation split, right? Um, yeah. Tough. So number one, how do you tackle that? Number one, you deal with the mitigation, right? Prevention is better than treatment better than cure, et cetera, core medicine, core public health. And so you will see the bulk of our, the way we talk about this, that's focused on, for God's sake, reduce your emissions. Come on, let's go. Yeah. To the extent you can do that whilst adapting at the same time, whilst enhancing your resilience, then you absolutely should, right? Not only are LEDs pretty damn special things that I spend far too much of my life talking about, but God, have you heard about the LEDs that can have heat monitors in them? where you can get some proper information about whether or not your water is overheating and whether or not you need to be worried about, you know, uh, an impending heat wave. Um, if you can combine some of those things at the same time, really, really critical. Um, but then there's stuff that you just have to do because it's good, good and important to adapt in order to keep up a proper functioning healthcare system. You're right, your stat on high-risk floodplains is, is correct. I worry about flood a fair bit. I worry about heat a fair bit as well in yeah. this country. Not as hot as where I'm from down in Australia, but frankly, our building stock in Australia is better suited to that heat. Yeah, sure. The building stock in this country, uh, not. Is, yeah, we're just not, we're not <laughs> yeah. we're not prepared for that kind of weather. We're used to rain and we're used to wind and cold, but we're not that sort of extreme temperature is just beyond what most of our infrastructure can cope with. We saw the impact of this. Um, just a few months ago in the heat wave that hit the United Kingdom, it was July, I think. End yeah, July, it was. Right? Yeah. We saw uh, guys and Tommy's, its IT system melted down. We saw dialysis units having to evacuate because some of the core gases that they had there were starting to uh, were st starting to become a little bit too hot, a little bit too dangerous. Yeah. We saw ambulance trusts back up at Black Alert in the middle of summer because too many people were calling from care homes where, frankly, you know, the heat monitoring isn't quite where we need it to be as a country, uh, having to come into hospital. So, so yeah, I think we've seen firsthand what some of that looks like. We've got a third of Pakistan, one third of a country the size of damn Pakistan underwater at the moment. Um, yeah. Some of those adaptation imperatives are, are really quite worrying. Frankly, if you take them at full, if you want to go full you know, speed ahead into a four degree world. I'm not sure it's worth bothering to adapt because I'm not sure it is actually possible, mm. right? I uh, I think the costs of that get a little too high. Now we're not going into a four degree world because we're going to do a damn good job of mitigating, I assure you. But um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's worth bearing that in mind, right? That there are absolutely limits, and there are physiological and there are health limits and healthcare limits to adaptation. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And and certainly the engineering resilience community is 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 absolutely driven to to try and address some of those things. And I'm guessing that um they will be moving into that, that healthcare area in the coming years just purely to to bring some of that knowledge and experience with them from how they've been dealing with the energy supply and um, infrastructure side of things. So 
clearly all of these areas that we've been talking about today, engineers and engineering is already playing and and is going to continue to play a significant role in ensuring the NHS uh, can become the world's first net zero healthcare service. And, And I feel very proud to be part of that community. What impact has engineering and technology played so far in achieving those goals for you? And what role do you think it will play in the coming decades? I I suppose in simple terms, how can we help? Yeah, sure. So listen, you guys have been on it, hey? Been on it for a couple of decades. So the first thing is when we turned around and said, okay, we're here at the table, we're ready for a fight. What do we got? We were able to go and steal from all of the work over the last couple of decades in the built environment, in the transport sector, and say, wow, God, they've come a long way. How can we steal some of that and apply it to healthcare? Um, so you've already helped an enormous <laughs> amount. Good. I think the next step is uh, we've got some specialist needs, right? We've got some weird needs, and they're not really things that you can talk about. You you know, the words nebulous and complex were used in the, in the same sort of sentence, right? <sighs> It's nebulous if you talk about those needs at the national level because the experience, like you said, of a patient moving through the NHS is just so unique. It really, really, really has to happen down at that ward level, down at that individual patient pathway level. And so we've got clinicians. They're angry. They're passionate. They want to grab with both hands the future of medicine and, you know, turn it into something exciting and low carbon. They're not always um, high skill when it comes to proper carbon accounting, when it comes to proper, you know, understanding and life cycle assessments when it comes to properly knowing what has and hasn't worked. And so they need a bit of help, man. Yeah. Our nurses, our physios, some of the smartest people in the world, some of the most passionate people in the world. But God, they could use, God, we could always use all the help we can get from some people that have done it before uh, that come along and say, hey, we can figure this out. In fact, usually where I get excited about, you know, my story about um, the big areas of, uh, of success are where a passionate clinician has, you know, grabbed something and engaged thing I missed out, which I shouldn't have, is there is usually an engineer somewhere behind the scenes who was actually working hand in hand with that anaesthetist, hand in hand with that asthma nurse, who figured out for them what the LCA was attached to both of those and provided the technical support that could marry with that clinical support. We need more of that, man. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, and it's, as I say, it's something very close to my heart. I'm absolutely driven to to ensure that we get more engineers coming into healthcare and more biomedical engineers really being at the bedside with patients, with doctors and nurses um, to, to ensure that that technology is, is really making a difference. Nick, it's an absolute pleasure as always to talk to you. You are so passionate about this subject and and I, I feel that our engineering community is going to be right behind you. Wherever you need to lead us, we'll be right there with you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to talk to me. It's It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you ever so much. Thanks, Helen. Keep kicking goals, eh? That's all for this month and for 2022. Thank you so much for listening to the show in this 175th anniversary year, as we have reached not only our 30th episode, but we have hit 14,000 downloads in starting the show in 2020. We have some exciting episodes and guests lined up for you next year, who will be sharing their love of engineering and how their contribution is improving the world. So from all of the team at Impulse to Innovation, Have a safe and happy winter wherever you are in the world and we'll see you again in February 2023.
You've been listening to Impulse to Innovation, the Institution of Mechanical Engineers podcast. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to share any news or any feedback with us, then please email us podcast at imeke.org. All the information on this episode can be found in the episode notes.